Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Well, today is what uh, is known on the church calendar as Palm Sunday. It marks the beginning of Holy Week, and it gets its name from the palm branches that the crowds of people um, cut down and waved and, and laid actually down on the road in front of Jesus as he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was his last entry into Jerusalem. And uh, the story is picked up. It's told in Luke chapter 19 uh, this way. That when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. Days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The crowds cheered. His opponents, his enemies, they challenged him in all of it. But in the midst of all that is going on, it says, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. And what I'd like to do this morning is rewind a couple of weeks. Back it up a little bit to another place where Jesus wept. The only other place it's recorded. It's recorded actually in John's Gospel, chapter 11. It's the event of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And John's Gospel tells us that that was the precipitous event. It was because of Lazarus being raised from the dead. That's why the crowds went out to see Jesus when he came into Jerusalem. That's why they were cheering because of these miracles, particularly this one of raising Lazarus from the dead. We're also told it is because of the raising of Lazarus from the dead that his enemies actively engaged in plotting his demise. It was that event that caused them to make that final decision. They were going to do away with this guy, with this rabbi called Yeshua. It is the final miracle that Jesus performed. And it is a thing that set everything else in motion. It was actually a foreshadow of his own death and resurrection. And in it, what he demonstrated was his power to give life. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. As we look at this event in John chapter, chapter 11, it's part of our whole series we've been calling Searching for Jesus. Getting a better understanding, looking at his life and his ministry and the words that he spoke and the actions that he took and the things that he did to better understand who is this Jesus that we follow. That we would know him better and be able to follow him more closely and, and, and more truly. To see him in ways maybe that we haven't seen him before. And this morning what I want to talk about is Jesus the life giver. Jesus, the master of life. And the best picture we have of that is in John chapter 11. The story begins actually where Jesus is, he's on the other side of the Jordan River. He is not in Jerusalem. He's not in Bethany. He's on the other side of the river. And the reason that he is there is that he, there is a bounty on his head. 
The last time that he was in Judea, they tried to stone him. And so he's kind of laid low. He's, he's backed off. He's gone off into the countryside. He's away from the, from the populace. He's away from the enemies. And it's while he is there that Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. John 11, chapter 3. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that the God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you and you're going to go back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles for he has no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. I don't know if you find that troubling at all. (laughs) It's a little disturbing. I don't understand Jesus' actions here. What's going on? His best friend, one of his best friends is sick. And yet, he waits two more days. It's confusing. It's a little disturbing. But in this, Jesus is giving us some teaching here. He's showing us some things. And it has to do with who he is as the master of life. Because as the master of life, one of the things we find about Jesus is he knows the end from the beginning. Jesus, as the master of life, he knows the end from the beginning. It says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick... He stayed where he was two more days. Two more days. Why? What's going on here? Why does Jesus wait? I mean, doesn't love demand that he be there? Isn't that what we want from our friends? We want him to be there. Be there for me. I want someone who will, who will be there for me, a shoulder to cry on. Or, 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 or a listening ear or, or arms that will hold me and hug me and, and tell me it's going to be okay. And yet Jesus waits. He waits two whole days. Why does he wait? What's going on here? The disciples, they think they know. They think they know why he's waiting. He's waiting because of self-preservation. In fact, when Jesus finally comes two days later and says, okay, now we're going to Judea, they say, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you're going back there? They think they know why Jesus isn't going. It's because he's protecting himself. There's a bounty on his head. The last time we were there, they tried to kill him. If he goes back again, he's, he's certain death. That's why he's not going. But that's not the reason. There's something far deeper, far more complex at work here. What Jesus is doing is teaching them about the kingdom of God. He is teaching us about the kingdom of God. Remember, that's what he said at the beginning of his ministry when he read from the prophet Isaiah how the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to to preach this good news, to to bring sight to the blind, to raise those who are dead, to, to bring those who are captive free, 
That's what he was all about. And, and yet he's waiting here. And, and it's almost this, this conflict. It's a contradiction. On one hand, he says, this sickness will not end in death. And yet just a few sentences later, he says, Lazarus is dead. Well, which is it, Lord? <laughs> is he not going to die or is he dead? What's going on here? He is teaching them a principle about the kingdom. And by the way, anytime when you read scripture and you find it disturbing, or you read the gospels and you read the accounts of Jesus and his actions and you go, why is he doing that? It's because he is teaching you something. See, he often acts in ways that we don't expect. The reason for that is, is we have a God in our own image. We are really good at defining God in our terms, by our thinking, by our image. And when God disturbs us, He's teaching us something true. He's doing away with the false notion that we have so that we could see him as he really is. In fact, Jesus says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, he said, this is why. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. He's going to teach them something. He is going to replace their false notions of who he is and what he's about with what is true. Every child... Every child believes that their parents are loving and wonderful, generous people whose greatest, greatest desire in life, nay, their very existence is to meet my needs. (laughs) Every child believes that. Every child believes that. That my parents are wonderful, loving people and they are so wonderful and they are so loving that they exist simply to meet my needs. And so my requests become demands. And when demands are not met, they lead to tantrums. And we hold our breath, and we stomp our feet, and we cry, and we yell, and we scream, and we put up all this commotion because we want to turn our parents from their wicked ways. We want them to see the truth, that their existence is to feed me and and help me and and buy me and and take me and, and do all this stuff for me. And that's what we do with God. We are like spoiled children who need nanny 911 to come along and say, that's not what I'm about. Because God does not exist to meet all of your needs. Not in the way that you think. Something far deeper is going on here. One of the things is that we need to understand God works behind the scenes when we don't know it. So we want to see him do something. We want him to show up. We want him to be there and make his presence known. And we want to see the results of our prayers. And we want it right now. And we don't understand. God works behind the scenes. In fact, some of his deepest work, he does in secret. Some of his most profound work, he does through pain. And one of the lessons that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here is, it's not always going to be the way you think. It's not always going to be the way you plan. But that does not mean that I'm not working. You see, we have learned the art of pain management in this world. We find ways to anesthetize ourselves from pain. We find as many ways to make ourselves comfortable and get away from pain. I remember going to the dentist as a teenager and the dentist looked at me and said, well, you got one small cavity. It's not a very big one. It's a little one. I think we can take care of this one without Novocaine. And he tried. (laughs) 
And I made very clear that was not what we're going to do this time, okay? You see, the cavity needs to be removed. But we are so good at, at dumbing, numbing the pain that we don't expect to have pain anymore. Surgery is painful. When a doctor does surgery and he cuts open and cuts out cancer, that is a painful thing. But we have anesthetists who come along and put us to sleep, the most peaceful sleep of our lives. And when we wake up and we feel a little pain, we push a button and it, and it dissolves our pain. We take a pill and it takes away the pain. We have learned the art of pain management and we don't understand Pain has its place. And one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he's saying, listen, I work in ways you don't understand. I do things in ways that you cannot comprehend. And sometimes it's through pain. In fact, I think it's a very good sentence for us to learn. The the, the sentence that Jesus said, this will not end in death. I, I think that should be a sentence that all of us has down to memory. This will not end in death. It is a reminder that this is not all that there is. In fact, I'd like you to say it out loud with me, would you? This will not end in death. Say it again like you mean it. This will not end in death. So when you get out of here and you get on on 680 and you're driving down the freeway this afternoon and you're going over the limit and CHP pulls you over and he writes you up a ticket, you're going to say to him, this will not end in death. Or when your business loses a major client... And half of the income that you were counting on for this year goes away. You will be able to say, this will not end in death. Or your teenager rebels and goes their own way and doesn't want to hear what you have to say and doesn't like the punishment that you meet out and finds ways to sneak out of the house and do it anyway, what they want to do. And they choose paths that you wish to God they would not choose. And everything looks hopeless and senseless. You can say, This will not end in death. And even when the tests come back from the doctor and the prognosis is cancer and the one you love is given months to live, you can still say, this will not end in death. Jesus knows Lazarus is dying. Jesus knows by now, Lazarus is probably dead. And yet he says, this will not end in death. Because God works in ways you cannot understand. And even death on this, in, in this life, on this planet, does not the end of the story. This will not end in death. Jesus is the master of life and he knows the end from the beginning and so he can say with confidence and as a follower of his, you can say with confidence, this will not end in death. Now that is not to minimize the pain. That is not to minimize the reality of suffering in this life. In fact, just the opposite. Because that is not the end of the story. Jesus doesn't stay on that side of Jordan. In fact, a little bit later, the story picks up in verse 21. And Jesus gets there. He arrives at Bethany. He comes to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And and the scene shifts. And now it's on the outskirts of town. And as he's coming into town, Martha hears that Jesus is on his way. Finally. And she runs out to meet him. And she gets there. And the first thing that she says is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was sent to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. And when Mary heard that, she got up quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews saw that, that, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and how she went out, they followed her, supposing that he was going, she was going to the tomb to mourn there. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus weeps. See, he joins us in our distress. He comes alongside in our pain and in our suffering. He doesn't say, quit your whining, buck up, come on, shake it off, rub some dirt in it, get along, move along, get over it. He doesn't do that. He understands the hurts of life. He understands the if-onlys. And every one of us in this room have had those if-only moments. If only. Martha comes out and says, Lord, if only you had been here. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And, And Mary comes out and she echoes the very same sentiment. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Those two words, if only. If only. If only I had been a better husband. If only I had said, I love you more often. If only I could take back those words that I regret. If only I'd gone to the doctor sooner. If only I'd paid a little more attention. Been a little more caring. A little more sensitive. A little more loving. If only... Jesus knows the if-onlys of your life. The regrets, the hurts, the hopelessness, the heartache of it. And yet there is something in there that is also a little bit accusatory. A little bit of a complaint. A little bit of blame as well. A little bit of hurt. So why didn't you show up? Why weren't you there? In fact, the crowd kind of gets into it. It says, the crowd says, he opened up the eyes of the blind man. Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Everybody wants to know. If only. It's like they're saying, Lord, I want to believe. I really want to believe. But you're not giving me much reason to right now. I don't understand. Frustrated. Abandoned. 
betrayed. And yet it is right there in the if onlys that Jesus shows up. That's when he makes his appearance. It's exactly where he joins them. And he doesn't come and he doesn't explain himself. And he doesn't have to have to somehow defend himself for it. He just shows up. And when he shows up, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And they asked, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they said. And Jesus weeps. Jesus wept. He was deeply moved and he wept. Now, those of you who are raised in Sunday school like I was, you know that verse. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. If you were part of Sunday school contests like I was, and you had to memorize, and you got points for every verse of the Bible that you memorized, you know that verse well. That's the first verse I ever learned. Because <laughs> that was the easiest gold star I ever got on the chart, you know. Jesus wept. Two little words. Simple sentence. Shortest verse in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. Simple, short, two words. And yet they're probably the two most profound words in Scripture. Why does he weep? You ever ask yourself that? Why does Jesus cry? He knows what he's about to do. In fact, he had told the disciples before they got here, we're going to wake him up. When he got there and met with Martha, he said, your brother will rise again. He knows what he's going to do. So why does he weep? Why does he cry? I think it's for the same reason that he joins with us. He joins them and grieves with them. But I think even more than that, He grieves for them as he grieves for you and for me because he sees the human condition broken, scared, angry, frustrated, questioning, cut off from God, cut off from the life they were meant to have. And I think that's why Jesus weeps. Because you see, in a week or so, he's going to weep again. As he stands outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And he weeps. And he says, if only. If only you had recognized. If only. If only you had seen. But now it's hidden from your eyes. He weeps at the human condition. That is plagued and hounded and haunted by death at every turn, from cradle to grave, who does not know lasting peace because life is so filled with the ups and downs. He weeps, and he weeps because of our condition, being cut off from the life that he has promised us. And Jesus weeps. He identifies with them in their grieving, and yet he also brings the solution. His words to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Notice, by the way, he doesn't say, I can resurrect him. He doesn't say, I will resurrect him. What he says is, I am the resurrection. I am. Because the answer, the answer is personal. The answer is relational. The answer is in a person, Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. It is intimate. It is communion, as we shared together this morning. 
identifying our lives with His and finding in Him the life that we were meant to have and then Him identifying Himself in us that we could be called the sons and daughters of God. And He weeps because that's what we've been cut off for. And that's what He came to give. He's a master of life. He joins us in the middle of our pain and our distress. He joins us in the here and now. And yet there's one more thing. This scene shifts one more time. And now they move from the outskirts of town to the graveyard. And they stand in front of it. And in verse 38, we're told, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. For he has been in there four days. King James Version, I love. But Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) I think that ought to just be in every version of the Bible. It's just so cool. He stinketh. He's been dead four days, Lord. I mean, come on. If there's, there's no hope left. There's nothing but a bad stink left in all of this. Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So so they took away the stone. Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of those standing near, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth was around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let him go. See, there's one more aspect to this thing of of being the master of life. That yeah, he joins us in the here and now of our pain. But the one thing about Jesus as the master of life is he keeps pointing us to eternity. He keeps showing us there's something more here. He stands at the tomb. And at the tomb, he literally stands on the threshold between this world and the next. That's where he's standing. He is standing between the tangible and the eternal. He is standing between their pain and the promise of an eternal life. And that is where he takes his stand. That's what he's doing. He is standing right there at the entrance to the grave. The grave that each and every one of us face someday. It's unavoidable. We will all be there. Every one of us in this room. And that's where he takes his stand. At the mouth of the grave as the stone is rolled away. And what does he do? He prays. He prays. And and, and listen to the prayer. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Get Get the... past the the tense of the verse the the verb there you have heard me this is not the beginning of a prayer this is the end of a prayer i thank you that you have heard me i knew that you always hear me but i said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me he prays but the prayer is not at the beginning this is the end of a prayer could it be could it just be that that's what he has been doing for the last two days Could it be that that's what Jesus has been doing for two days since he got word? That he has been praying, Father, let your kingdom come. Break the stranglehold of death in this world. Overcome the hurt and the pain that we experience in this life. Father, bring your kingdom. Bring life. 
where there is nothing but death. Could it be that he has been praying those words for two days? And now he stands in front of a tomb and says, I thank you that you've heard me. He says, I know you always hear me. I'm not saying this for my benefit, but for those who are alongside me here. What he is doing for one is what he is about to do for all mankind. He is standing in the gap. He is bridging the chasm between this world and the next. He is opening up and making available the kingdom of God for everyone. That's what he's doing. Because every miracle that he, procl- every miracle that, that he did Every miracle that he did was to give us a glimpse of eternity. When he opened blind eyes, he was reminding us, someday we all shall see. When he healed lame legs, he was telling us, someday we will all walk. When he stands before the the tomb of a good friend who has died, he is saying to each and every one of us, someday we will live. Someday, death will be defeated once and for all. And that is what he invites each and every one of us to. That is what he means when he says, come and follow me. He says, join with me and stand in the gap. Join with me and stand at the threshold between this world and the next. And at that doorway, beckon people to life. Tell them this world is not all that there is. And the pains and the hurts, though they are real, they are not the end of the story. Because someday, someday, it's all going to be made right. And what he is doing, I believe, is he is preparing his disciples and his followers for the inevitable. Because just a few moments later, he pulls them aside. And he says, in a little while, you will see me no more. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Someday. Someday. Someday, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Someday, there will be no more death or sadness. Someday there will be no more crying or pain. Things are no longer what they used to be. Because of Christ. And what he is doing for them and what he is doing for us is he's saying, I will not always be here. And it won't be just a matter of being two days late. I'm going away. I will no longer be with you in the way that you once knew me. But that doesn't mean I'm not with you. And you will not see me and touch me and and, and hug me and, and shake hands with me the way you once did. But that doesn't mean I'm not with you. And you will still go through pain and you will go through grief and you will go through sorrow and you will go through hurt and you will experience all that life has to do. But that doesn't mean it's the end of the story. Always remember there is an eternity for you. This world is not our home, folks. And most of the problems that we have is because we make ourselves too comfortable in a place we were never intended to stay. (laughs) 
And one of the things that Jesus did throughout his ministry, and certainly right here, is he's saying, there is another life, and it is far more real than you can imagine. There is a reality that you cannot see, but it is just as real. It is more real. And though you may have hurt and pain and sorrow in this world, I am with you in this world, but I'm also telling you, something better is coming. Someday, pain and grief and frustration and tears will all be wiped away. And that is the life that he intended for us. That is the life that he is the master of. And he says to anyone who would follow him, take up your cross and follow me. Give up this life in which you seek comfort and follow me. For if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Would you bow your heads with me? He knew what he was talking about, folks. He knew what he was talking about. He really does know the end from the beginning. And he really does understand your pain. And he joins you in the here and now. But remember, he keeps pointing us toward eternity. He keeps reminding us, this is not our final destiny. This is not the end of the story. This is not all that there is. This is merely preparation for what is to come. And what is to come is far more real than you can imagine. So trust me. Trust me, he says. Maybe that you're here this morning confused by the circumstances of your life. They don't seem to make sense. And maybe in the middle of all of that, you're feeling lost and alone, like God has somehow deserted you. And you're wondering, where is He right now? He is with you. And He is working in ways you cannot see. And He is preparing you for something that is far more real than you can imagine. And even in death, He's bringing life. So what has you confused this morning? What has you frustrated? Questioning, doubting, wondering? Let it go. He says, trust me. Just trust me. Lord, there's much in this life that we do not understand. Much less can we imagine what the life to come is like. We cannot begin to fathom it. We have enough trouble with the here and now. And yet you've told us, you are the resurrection and the life. You have promised us there is something more. And it is real. We can trust you. We can trust you today. We can trust you tomorrow. We can trust you with our eternal destiny. So, Lord, help us to trust. When we don't see the answers in the way that we would like or in the timing that we would expect, 
in those times when you feel so distant and far away. Help us to trust. And when this life becomes so overwhelming that things seem absolutely hopeless, remind us this will not end in death. This will not end in death. Teach us to trust you, to follow you, to abandon all for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 